our text today, which is the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 12, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 1. And I'll be reading from the NIV. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station my cells on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of our salvation. And Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us this word to consider this morning. Uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it and to apply it. And I do pray, Lord, that anything that I might say that is wrong would be quickly forgotten. And Lord, again, that your Holy Spirit would preach a much better sermon than I have written. We just ask, Father, that your living word would cut deep into us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin, I must say I'm very grateful to God for books like Habakkuk. Uh, this book, as well as a number of the Psalms, give us permission, if you will, to lament, to cry out to God and to lay before him burdens that are too overwhelming for us to handle. In this book, we see the prophet attempting to understand the ways of God. Things do not make sense to him, and so he lays it all before the Lord and asks God to give him understanding. And the thing that's important to understand is that he's not railing against God or shaking his fist at him. He's, per he's perplexed, and he wants to understand. There are times when we do not understand the workings of God, and there are times when we are completely blown away by his grace in our lives. And perhaps even in these times, we do not understand. Well, Habakkuk reminds us that our God, the Lord of the universe, is big enough to take on our questions. We are also reminded that God, that God when he answers, does not always give us the answers that we want. And so, what it boils down to is this. Do we trust God? In Exodus chapter 3, we are told of Moses' first encounter with God. When Moses fled Egypt, he came to Midian, and there he married and became a shepherd, and by all accounts was quite happy with his life in Midian. But God had other things in mind for him, 
things that Moses at first did not want to face nor want to do. At the burning bush, he encounters God who tells him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, one can imagine that Moses, upon hearing this, thought to himself, this is excellent. This is wonderful news. However, then God goes on to tell him, oh, by the way, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out. And we can imagine that Moses' supportive thoughts changed immediately to, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. And then he says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And then Moses proceeds to give God all sorts of reasons while he's not the man for the job. But in the end, he goes, and God uses him wonderfully. And it's interesting in this story is that Israel had been crying out for 400 years or so. They've been in captivity for 400 years. But it's at this time, at this place, that God chooses to act, and he chooses to do so with Moses. The ebb and flow of the argument that, that happens later on between Moses and Pharaoh must have gripped the people as they were wondering, are we going? Are we not going? And certainly they were well aware of the plagues that ensued and were caught up in them as well. I mean, remember on that last the last plague, the angel of death, they're to, they're to paint their door lentils. They're given that specific word because if they don't, they too will be caught up in it. And so we can well imagine the joy among the people when finally Pharaoh agreed to let them go. Their hopes and prayers realized beyond anything they ever imagined. But with all people, Israel was fickle. And like us, their faith at times was not as strong as it should have been. And the first indication of this displeasure with God and Moses came at the Red Sea. Pharaoh, having changed his mind, sent his army after the people of God. And with the sea in front of them and the massive army at their back, they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? How fickle a grateful people can soon become. Throughout their deliverance, Israel complained and even at times wished to go back to Egypt an Egypt that wasn't nice, an Egypt that was known, and to them, an Egypt that was normal. Now, during the course of this virus, we've all been talking about wanting to get back to normal. But what is normal? Normal is always in flux. What is normal today for my grandchildren is a different normal than when I was a child, and in some ways this saddens me, but in other ways, it makes me very glad. For example, I remember, and probably like some of you, going to the local high school in the early 60s and being given a sugar cube that was laced with a polio vaccine, a disease that we now rarely hear about. I remember my mother being so relieved that we now had the vaccine for polio because she had been affected by polio at one time. For us, the new normal was a world safe from polio, but sadly for those still in an iron lung because of the disease, their normal was quite different. 
Normal for one is not the same normal for another. And this is of course very true on a personal level, on a familial level, but also on a national and global level. Now I too miss things as they were. I miss going to California with Nancy to see Krista and her family. I miss family gatherings. I miss playing softball, even though I'm so antiquated. I miss the way life was, but those are nothing in comparison to people's lives who've been terribly affected by this pandemic. I feel deeply for the families who've lost loved ones who are still fighting this dreadful disease. And I'm concerned for those who have lost their jobs and wondering how they're gonna make ends meet. All of our lives, all of our lives on so many different levels have been affected by this virus. But I must admit being isolated has made me more appreciative of the things in life for which I, look, I took for granted. It has also made me more grateful for my church family. And while I like seeing you on Zoom, it's a poor substitute for being with you in person. As Christians, we acknowledge the sovereignty of God. He's our Lord and he's in control of all things. And that being so, we also acknowledge that God has promised to do what he needs to do to draw us to him. Those of us who already proclaim him as Lord, but also those who are still in darkness. If God chooses to use this present situation for these purposes, then this whole thing has been worth it. Our call is to be faithful in the midst of it all and to trust God to see us through. What God has for us is what's best for us, whether we understand it or not. We, like Israel, do not always see that. We proclaim God as Lord, but do we trust him? Throughout this sermon series, we've seen the prophet wrestling with these sorts of things as he cries out to God to hear his plea. God hears, but his answer is not what Habakkuk anticipated. Habakkuk is even more perplexed by the answer he receives from the Lord. In fact, from here on out, we know that Israel is an occupied nation, a nation under the rule of others, with freedoms far removed, life curtailed in unimaginable ways. And for them now, as we get to the prophet, Babylon is coming and there's nothing they can do about it. Now, by way of a reminder or recap, we just need to remember that shortly before Habakkuk began his ministry, the international situation was shocked by far-reaching events that had a tremendous impact on the region. The Assyrian Empire that had been, had been crushed, never to regain power. The Egyptians, after king, killing Josiah, the king of Judah, were themselves utterly defeated. And while new power was, world power was building in the east, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, ascended to the throne and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's to this evil that Habakkuk first cries out to God in the early part of chapter 1. The new world order, or new world power, building in the east was Babylon under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. In last week's sermon, we saw that God was going to raise up the Babylonians, this new world power, to exact judgment upon Judah for its sins. And within a period of approximately 20 years, the Babylonians swept over Judah in successive waves, ultimately destroying the country and taking many of its inhabitants into captivity. As we come to our text this morning, upon receiving God's 
response to his first plea, Habakkuk presents a second lament or petition to God. He begins focusing on the character God of God, specifically his holiness and justice. And although Habakkuk questions God's mode of chastening Judah, specifically in light of God's character, he does show confidence in God as he patiently waits for the response to his plea. Now, it's important to understand that there's a lot going on here on a lot of different levels, and we'll talk about that a little later. But we must remember that this is indeed a prophecy and not and it is not only a message that is being conveyed between the prophet and God, but also to a nation, a nation loved by God, and that is in desperate need of correction. In Habakkuk's first lament, the prophet begins with his complaint, but not here. Although the Lord answers, <clears throat> Lord's answer dealt precisely with the issues raised by his prophet, they ended up troubling him more than his original questions. In fact, Habakkuk became even more bold, and he actually questions God over the means by which he intends to punish the wickedness of Judah. But he approaches God cautiously, and this is important, by expressing confidence in the nature and the purpose of God. And then in the next verses, he questions God's plan of action. The issue with Habakkuk is not a weak faith. It's a perplexed faith. And in this prophecy, we see the wonderful nature of God displayed to us as he's willing to listen and to talk things through, if you will, with a prophet. By chapter three, Habakkuk's attitude is even more adjusted, if you will, more in line with understanding and trusting God as he comes to a point where he bows down to the Lord in prayer and celebrates the goodness of God. Is not a big part of sanctification learning to see things as God sees them? learning to trust God? I think this is what is happening to the prophet and hopefully to Judah as well. He begins in verse 12 by acknowledging the character and the sovereignty of God. In so doing, he is contrasting the differences between the God of Judah and the God of Babylon. In verse 11, in God's response to the prophet, God says in reference to Babylon, guilty men whose own strength is their God. Habakkuk is making it very clear that he has complete confidence in the power of God. As he does so, he uses God's intimate name, Yahweh, which is translated as Lord in the NIV and the ESV, a name that was only to be used by God's covenantal people, a name that has its root in the idea of God's independent and underived existence. Habakkuk's confidence is rooted in the eternality of God as well as in God's faithfulness to his covenantal people as highlighted by when he says in verse 12, we will not die. Things are bad, but we will not die. Trouble is coming, but it's not the end. In fact, the term rock, which is used on a variety of occasions in the Old Testament as a name for God, implies reliability. In Deuteronomy 32.4, we read of the first time that God is referred to as the rock to the people of Israel. He is the rock. His work, works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as he. And it's quite likely that Habakkuk had this verse in mind when he said, O rock, you have ordained them to punish. 
God is a sure source of strength and he endures throughout every generation. And this quality of authentic endurance assures Habakkuk that Yahweh will bring the wicked to judgment. He understands that God has established the Babylonians as his instrument for rebuke. The Hebrew word here for punish is used in a variety of ways with underlying judicial overtones. God has a case against Judah for violating the covenant. And he wants to rebuke or chasten them to bring Judah to its senses. And the same term is used to describe the response that God promised to the disobedient descendants of David at a time of the establishment of the, of the covenant. God would rebuke him with rod of men, the, the rod of men. The people of God had grown accustomed to having God rebuke the nations on their behalf and understood their role as the source from which the rebuke of God would go forth against the nations. And this we clearly see in the time of David. But they were prone to forget that inherent in the provision of the Davidic covenant was a conditional clause promising a most severe chastening for the Davidic descendant that violated the covenant. They only remembered one half of the covenant, in other words. Habakkuk, having grounded his confidence in two key attributes of God, begins his second lament. And he first begins with the source of the problem, which is verse 13. And then he points out two factors which intensify the problem at hand. And those are in verses 14 through 17. Each line of each verse builds on the preceding line. And this parallelism highlights the intensity of the prophet's case before God. As Habakkuk begins his complaint, foundational to his argument is the purity of God and his disdain of evil. In the second lament, Habakkuk makes it clear that the re what the real issue is. It's not that Israel needs judgmental intervention to correct their injustices. He gets that. What he does not understand is the instrument of such correction God has chosen. How can God, who's pure, use the wicked Babylonians to carry out judgments on his own chosen people. How can such a thing be good in the eyes of a perfect God? In verse 13, Habakkuk makes his argument by articulating the purity of God. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. No one can understand the prophet's consternation. The word tolerate, as translated in the NIV, comes from another word having to do with sight. God's eyes, due to his purity, cannot look upon evil, nor can he see wrong. And this imagery highlights the separation that exists between God and evil. But then how are we to understand this? In Proverbs 15.3, we are told that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. But there's a difference. The Proverbs passage reflects the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. Here, Habakkuk seems to be arguing that God, by using evil in some way or another, is condoning it. But we know this cannot be the case. God, in his sovereignty, we know, uses evil for his purposes time and time again, but he never condones evil, and because that would be an impossibility. Sometimes pain is necessary for good. Just ask those who have gone through chemotherapy or are going through it now. It sounds absolutely awful, but if it eradicates the cancer that wants to kill us, then it's worth it. And on an extraordinarily much more mundane level, I remember years ago 
having a bike accident and lying on the doctor's table and having gravel dug out of both my knee and shoulder. Now that was bad enough, but when he poured the iodine into the wounds, that seemed far worse than the actual injuries sustained in the crash. But that iodine was necessary to prevent infection. Infection, if left unchecked, that could have killed me. Now next week, we'll see that the Babylonians don't get off scot-free. I mean, I know we already know this, but God promises to deal harshly with them specifically for the way in which they took joy and pride in their harshness towards Judah as well as other nations. Again, the problem with Habak for Habakkuk is that God is dealing with Judah in a way that appears contradictory to those principles he laid down for his own people. In fact, in Leviticus 5, God declared that if a person keeps silent when he, give, when he can give witness to a public charge of a crime, he's sinning and will be held responsible. And so Habakkuk says to God, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And swallowing up means essentially annihilation. God in the past swallowed up the enemies of Israel as he did at the Red Sea, but now God's own people face the prospect of being wiped out by their enemies. And this is to a certain degree what happened when Judah was taken into exile. They were swallowed up. Certainly they weren't wiped out, but they were swallowed up. But the temple was destroyed. The walls around the city were torn down. Many of the people were taken into captivity. Jerusalem was just a shell of its former self. And while later the Persians who had, who had taken over Babylon allowed the people of God to return to Judah, things were never really the same. The temple was sort of rebuilt, as was the wall, but it wasn't as it once was. In verses 14 and 15, things get worse for Judah. And the prophet uses imagery of powerful nets and hooks that gather up the people as if they are fish. In a sense, Habakkuk is implying a dehumanization of the people of God. They have no place to go and are easily caught in nets or by hooks. They are subject to the whims of the Babylonians and there's nothing they can do about it. The thing that is striking about this is that there were faithful Jews, righteous Jews, who were living in obedience to God, who were also caught up in these nets. They were swallowed up, and even though they are righteous before God, they were taken into captivity. But God had reasons for this, as we will see, just as he had reasons for Moses to flee Egypt, to be in Midian at that right time, and to go back to deliver the people of God from the hands of the Egyptians. On the top of this apparent injustice is the arrogance of the Babylonians. They act as if all they had done was by their own power. They sacrifice to their nets and burn incense to their dragnet. They are proud of their prowess and success of their catch. And the prophet asks, is Babylon going to be allowed to keep on doing this to nation after nation with no mercy? The Babylonians actually carved reliefs into stone as memorials to their power. And these reliefs showed captives gathered in nets. The Babylonians followed the practice of the Assyrians of taking hooks and hooking them through the noses or the lower lips of their captives and stringing them together to humiliate them 
and to emphasize their control over these poor people as fish who are being dragged up from the bottom of the sea. They celebrated such atrocities. And then our text ends with Habakkuk stating to God, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. Habakkuk takes the position of one who's on the watch for an enemy. But in this case, he awaits for God. He's also very well the fact that he is the prophet for Judah at this time and at this place. And therefore, he has to give the word of the Lord to the people of Judah. The prophets understood themselves to be watchmen. This isn't anything new. We see this with Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Micah. They were to see the Lord's purposes and to communicate them to his people. <clears throat> well, Habakkuk has laid out a pretty bleak picture. He's been pretty audacious in the things that he has said to God. Has the prophet gone too far? Now, I think there are a number of things to consider here, and I think they're helpful for us as we consider our present situation. First, it seems to me what Habakkuk is really lamenting is the fallen nature of man. He's not happy with the people of God, and he's definitely not happy about the Babylonians. The thought that man can find hope in himself, of course, is absurd. Survival of the fittest does not work as there will always be someone who is fitter than you. The Romans were more fit than the Greeks, the Greeks more fit than the Persians, the Persians more than the Babylonians, the Babylonians more than the Assyrians, and so on. Man has always wanted to be in control. We know that. We struggle with sin, and sin at its core is we want to be in control. We want to do what we want to do. And when man claims to have it, when he thinks he's got control, all he has is an illusion. We have learned in, recent, in this recent pandemic that a microbe that we can't even see with the naked eye can knock the world on its ears, and we are powerless on our own to deal with it. Man cannot make it without God. Second, we see that judgment was indeed needed for Judah, and even though they had endured years of hardship under the hand of the Assyrians, which also came as a result of their sin, now they must continue to endure because they have not learned to trust in God alone. Their hearts have become so hardened that nothing seemed to get their attention more than captivity. And while the entire nation may not have learned from these seasons of chastening, <clears throat> there were those who did, and those who turned back to God, and in the end praised God for what they had been through. Third, as we read Habakkuk, we see we need to remember that God was shifting things around globally. Powers rise, powers fall, but they do so as allowed by God to carry out his will. The rise and falls of these powers meant that Jews were being spread throughout the Near East and later on Southern Europe. Jews whose descendants would be in place at the right time to receive the gospel and take it to the far regions of the world. And fourth, God is doing a work within each of these judging countries. 
they too will see their hope cannot be in their power and their might. And there's nothing, that they, there's no way that they can compare to the Lord God Almighty. As Dan pointed out last week, Nebuchadnezzar had remarkable encounters with God and may very well have come to believe in Yahweh. At the very least, he eventually acknowledged that no God was greater than the God of Judah. And finally, God is doing a work on a much more personal level, I would suggest, in the life of Habakkuk. Through his interaction with God, the prophet, as we will see, is a changed person at the end of this short book. You see, it is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for answers. We need to remember that God works on multiple levels, and we can only see a small fraction of what he's doing. He has not the big picture, but the whole picture. Well, we may only have one or two pixels of it, and those pixels are more than enough for us. John Newton, the former slave trader and, of course, the writer of Amazing Grace, after his conversion became an Anglican minister. And in a pastoral letter to a grieving sister, he wrote this. Your sister is much upon my mind. Her illness grieves me. Were it in my power, I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope will, when he has answered the end for which he has sent it. I wish you may be enabled to leave her and yourself and all your concerns in his hands. He has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, surely we shall confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. When you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. He will not leave you to sink. He has appointed seasons of refreshment, and you shall find that he does not forget you. Above all else, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping from him. I think that last, last line is just extraordinarily powerful. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping from him. Sometimes when we draw near to God, we don't necessarily get the answer that we need or the understanding that we need, but that doesn't mean that we stop drawing near to him. Sometimes there's a process that we have to go through in order to, to get that understanding. Habakkuk was drawing near to God on behalf of the people of Judah. And for his, <clears throat> he had questions, but he knew where to look for the answers. And in the end, as God gently responds to him, he responds, Habakkuk responds in praise. And this is the remarkable thing about our God. When, we, when Dan preaches next week, you will see how God gently responds to Habakkuk in a most gracious way. We may not always understand why God works the way he works, but we know of his character. We know of his love, and we know that he is in control. 
And when we have given our lives to Christ, they are his, not partially his, all his, to do as he sees fit. May we respond in praise and in trust of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of our salvation and our eternal hope. And we know that we are completely sunk without you. Uh, Lord, we're weak. We, we acknowledge that. We're, we also are fickle. We acknowledge that too. And we ask forgiveness for that. But we pray, Lord, that we would be, be content with what you allow us to see and to understand. And that we would never be bashful about going to you. We don't want to go through this life, you know, stoically with our chin up. Our emotions are part of who we are. We need to cry out when we need to cry out. But we just pray, Father, that you would help us to always remember <clears throat> that when we do cry out, uh, that we end with, 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 a, with, with a trust in you. Where maybe we don't understand, maybe we'll never understand. But let us be content in knowing, Lord, that there's a reason for all that you do. And that reason's for our good and for your glory. And what matters more than that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.